0: Well, just a few moments ago, uh, we all stood and we sang a song celebrating Jesus' bloody death uh, on a cross. Um, what can wash away my sin? Right? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And this is not the only song that we sang celebrating like the cross of Christ. We, sing, we sang uh, another just before it, and we sing about it uh, every week. I think that's right and proper to do. But let's be honest, right? From the outside looking in, singing about a cross, singing about crucifixion, right? Singing about uh, the blood of Jesus can sound really weird, and strange. It can sound sadistic even. Right? Consider the facts. A purely innocent man was picked up by a mob. And then he was tortured under police custody. And then he was lynched. Right? Crucified. Hung on a tree. The whole episode of Jesus' death is horrific, and it's brutal, and it is grotesque, yet Christians sing about it, and we celebrate it, and we even dare to call it good, right? This was Good Friday, but what on earth about it was good? What gives? Well, let's look at the passage, right, starting at uh, verse 1828, okay? Okay? Then they, that's this lynch mob, they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. Okay. Jesus dies during the Passover. Uh, John, who wrote this gospel, points this out at several points in the narrative that we read. Okay. It's a significant detail. But why? What is the Passover? Why is it significant? Well, the story of the very first Passover is uh, told uh, in the book of Exodus. That's the second book of the Bible. It goes Genesis, Exodus. But Exodus 12, right, chapter 12. Right in the book uh, of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, the people of God are being held in slavery. They are in bondage in Egypt. God sees their affliction He hears their cries for rescue, and he knows their suffering. And he does something decisive uh, to save them. First of all, God sends Moses to Pharaoh. Tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Well, Pharaoh refuses. He's like, who's God? Never heard of him. And not only does he not let God's people go, He actually pushes his thumb of oppression even harder, right? With more force upon uh, the people of Israel, right? He makes them. He tells the Egyptian uh, taskmasters uh, to force the slaves to make just as many bricks as they were before, but without straw. And this really is the last straw. Because God then tells Moses to stand on the bank of the River Nile, to roll up his sleeves, And to hold out his staff. See, God's about to throw down the gauntlet. He's about to wage war against Pharaoh. And against his gods. He sends nine plagues. Each plague worse than the one that preceded it. Each plague demonstrating God's power to save. And also demonstrating Pharaoh's impotence. And his God's impotence to stop him. But Pharaoh's heart is hard, and it's hardened, and he refuses to let God's people go. Well, after nine plagues, it's on to one more, right, a tenth. But this one, right, the tenth, is qualitatively different from everyone that preceded it. See, plagues one through nine, God worked through Moses. Moses was the one calling Pharaoh out. Moses was the one sort of holding out his staff as each plague right, descended upon Egypt. But this time, it's different. This time, the 10th time, God himself is going to show up. Right? This time, God himself is going to touch down on earth and execute justice. Right? Exodus 12, verses 4 through 5 reads, Thus says the Lord, About midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. See, this is a problem, right? God showing up is a problem not just for the Egyptians, but for the Israelites as well. And it's a problem not because God is bad, but because he is good. Because he is good. God's perfection, his perfect goodness is a threat to people who are sinners like you and me. It's not just that his perfect goodness is beautiful and in that way sort of what intimidating, right? Maybe when uh, somebody who's much more attractive than you is in the room, you sort of just feel like less than, right? Like all eyes are on him or her. It's not intimidating in that regard so much as it's threatening because um, it lashes out against evil. Can you imagine a being who absolutely cannot stand, just will not tolerate sin? It's kind of like the sun, right? Um, you get too close to it, it can burn you up. Right? The light of God's holiness exposes sin and reveals it. But also like the sun, the heat right, of his wrath, his anger against sin just burns it right up. And if God's hate sin and his wrath burns against it, you and I are in trouble, right? We're kind of toast. We're toast because our lives are saturated in it. Look, just try to live a perfectly selfless life. Try to live a perfectly loving life just for a day, just one day and you will realize just how deep your problems lie. Because not only can you be perfectly selfless and loving for a day, you can't do it for a week, or a month, or a year, let alone a lifetime. We all fail to deliver the goods. We all fail right, to love God and neighbor as we ought. But we've also crossed a line. Right? We wound God, and we wound each other, and we wound this world by our self-centered behavior. For sin-saturated persons like you and me, right? God showing up is not something to be celebrated uh, so much as feared. This week I learned about white blood cells called T-cells. I know uh, all you nursing majors and biochem majors in this room can school me in this. Right, You know this way better than I do. I failed high school bio, so seriously, teach me uh, more. But what I learned this week is that T-cells float through the blood right, looking for disease, and thereby they protect the body. T-cells have sort of x-ray vision. Right? They can scan a cell, and they can see if there's anything wrong with it, anything wrong inside of it. And if and when they detect disease, they can deal with it directly, like destroy the cell, or they can enlist other cells to come in and fight against the disease. Well, T-cells aren't bad, right? They're actually really, really good. It's sin, it's disease that's the problem, right? T-cells are the good guys doing their job. And that's kind of like God, right? Like when he shows up, when he's passing through Egypt looking for evil, looking for sin. He cannot help but hate it and fight it. He can't help it, right? It's in his nature. He too has x-ray vision, as it were. He can peer into our hearts. He knows our motives. He knows us inside and out, right? He sees our sin, and he can't help but lash out against it. Right, God fights sin and evil, right, like any good T-cell would fight disease. But he's not just some divine T-cell. He's not just a judge, right, executing judgment. God is also a loving father who wants to save his kids. Consider this just classic uh, illustration. Imagine uh, that you are driving home uh, for spring break. You hit I eighty nine and then it is pedal to the metal and you're just going one hundred and five miles per hour down the highway on your way home. Well, as you get near your house, a cop catches you on his radar. He throws on the lights, pulls you over. Right, you are busted. He impounds your car and he throws you in the back and he's taking you to the local courthouse where you're going to go see a judge. Well, the good news is you're actually pretty close to home. You're actually in the county that your dad serves as district judge. Okay? And you're going to get to see him. And you think you're golden. Right? Because your dad loves you. He's going to let you off, you think. Right? Everything is going to be just fine. But then you remember something. My dad, the judge, is actually a really good judge. He's never... Impartial, or he's always, yeah, he he never is biased. He always does uh, the right thing. He always holds the guilty uh, accountable for their actions. So now you're starting to feel a little bit nervous, right? Is he going to love me? (laughs) Or is he going to be just? And the answer is yes. As you stand before him, right? He asks, son, daughter, officer said that you were going 50 miles per hour over the speed limit. Is that true? How do you plead? Hey, you know you're caught. You know you're busted. So you're like, it's true. I'm guilty. So he bangs down the gavel as he issues his, his sentence. It's going to be $5,000 or a week in jail. Guilty as charged. Well, you don't have $5,000. You just have two hundred and eighty-two dollars to go to summer conference, <laughs> right? You don't have five grand. So as the bailiff is about to take you off to prison where you're about to serve your time, the judge, your dad, says, "Stop, stop right there." He gets off out behind right his desk, and he takes off his robe, and he walks over to where you're sitting, uh, where you're se- sitting, standing. And he pulls out a checkbook and he writes out a check for $5,000 and he hands it to the state. Your dad, the judge, executes justice. Right? But he's also gracious to you at the same time. Willing to pay your debt. At Passover... Israel saw God show up and they saw him show up in judgment, but they also beheld his grace because God gave them a way out. A lamb without stain or blemish could bear their punishment in their place. Right? The instructions were to kill a lamb, sprinkle its blood on the doors and the lintel of the house, and then to eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And later that night, when God is passing through Egypt, when he sees the blood on the house will pass over. He'll pass over it because he knows that a blood payment has been made. A substitute has died in the place of the house. Passes over it. That's where Passover gets its name. Those covered in the blood of the innocent lamb get to go free. Well, that's the story of the first Passover, and Jews have been observing this event every year ever since. And this is what they were doing some 2,000 years ago on the night that Jesus was betrayed and later killed. And this detail is not a coincidence. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, Jesus took some unleavened bread. But instead of saying what Jews always said, this is the bread of affliction our fathers had to eat as they came out of Egypt, Jesus took bread and he broke it and said, this is my body. It's for you. Take it and eat it. And then he picked up a cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many This is my body. This is my blood. Jesus could not have said it really any clearer. I'm about to go to my death, the ultimate Passover lamb. I, Jesus says, am the lamb of God that every other Passover lamb points to. I am the truly innocent one whose blood has really got you covered. I am the true substitutionary sacrifice. I am the one who is the really innocent one who is going to die for you, to take your punishment so that God can pass over you. I am the Passover lamb whose death secures your life and secures your freedom from all of life's enemies, from sin and Satan and even death itself. And it's not just Jesus who is making this point. That Passover day, albeit unknowingly, Pontius Pilate is right there with them. 1838, I find no guilt in him. He's innocent. Nineteen four. see, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. 1906, take him, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. This man is sinless. This man is without fault. This man is without stain or blemish. Behold, the Lamb of God is going to die for your sins. Pilate doesn't say that. But Christians, right, with the eyes of faith, know exactly what's going on. At the very time that the Passover lambs were being slaughtered in Jerusalem, at the very time that Passover lambs were being slaughtered in the city, Jesus is being slaughtered outside of it. Crucified by those that he had come to save. And the prophet Isaiah, who was writing some 800 years before Jesus ever took to the stage, he saw it all and he wrote it down. To his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Right? He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he opened not his mouth. I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and he makes intercession for the transgressors. 800 years before this day. In the words of one theologian, nothing, nothing in all the history of paganism comes anywhere close to this combination of event, intention, and meaning. Nothing in Judaism had prepared for it except in puzzling, shadowy prophecy. The death of Jesus of Nazareth is either the most stupid. Senseless waste and misunderstanding the world has ever seen, or it is the fulcrum around which the world history turns. The cross of Jesus is either the most stupid, senseless waste and misunderstanding the world has ever seen, or it is the fulcrum around which world history turns. A tragedy to top all tragedies or a divine comedy. Right? The worst thing turning out to be the best. Christians believe in the divine comedy. That Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. That he was (coughs) crucified, died, and was buried and that he descended into hell. All right, with the eyes of faith, we see this God-awful afternoon for what it truly was, right? a Good Friday, our exodus, our Passover, and our passage into freedom. On this fateful Passover some 2,000 years ago, the ultimate Passover lamb paid the ultimate price, On the cross, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experiences the God-forsakenness of hell. So you and I don't have to. Every punishment that our sins deserve, Jesus endured in our stead. Which is why he also cries out: It's finished. It's also why he cries out, it's finished. Mission accomplished. Debt paid in full. Look, Jesus did not pay your debt 5%. He didn't pay it 10%. He didn't pay it 50%. He paid it 100%. Okay, all that is to say is there's no such thing or place as purgatory. Okay, there is no intermediate place that you go to when you die to pay off the interest of your sins or some remaining balance. Nowhere in the Bible will you find any such place mentioned or described. It simply does not exist. On the cross, Jesus paid the whole price of your sins, and he won the whole of your salvation. He drank the cup of God's wrath down to the very dregs, which is why there is no more wrath left for you and for me. He took it all. He drank it all down. It is finished. It is done. Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. See, our sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. You know, Christians sing about the blood of Jesus because we see God's justice and his mercy meet there. His, His justice, right, and his mercy meeting there. He is fully just, and he is fully loving, and we see that perfectly at the foot of Jesus' cross. See, God hates sin way more than you do, and he loves you way more than you think. The Bible says that for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame. Do you know what that joy was? the joy that was set before him so that he could endure the cross and despise its shame? Well, it's none other than you. Jesus went to the cross gladly for the joy that was set before him. Right? An eternity that he gets to spend with you. This is a strange way of showing your love. If you're not really in danger. It's a strange way of showing love if you don't really have guilt. Like, that was unnecessary. But, if you really are in danger, if you really do have guilt that separates you from the love of God, this is the greatest love gift he could ever give you. And did. See, God shows his love for us and... This that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He took the punishment that our sins deserve so that we could walk out free. And that's an important point, right? Not only is the cross a display of God's justice and his mercy, it is our passage into freedom. For freedom Christ has set us free. See, after sheltering under the blood of, the, of that first Paschal lamb, at that very first Passover, after killing a lamb and sprinkling their house with it and hiding behind it, waiting for God to pass over them, you know what happened next? They woke up and they walked out of Egypt, no longer slaves, but free. And they walked out singing. Right? They had the tambourine. Uh, Miriam, right, is one of Megan's favorite characters, right, leaves Egypt with an instrument because she's like, I know that there's going to be opportunities for us to sing. There's a lot to celebrate. Passover meant freedom from bondage. And Passover entailed God walking with them and them walking with God into the promised land. That's what Passover meant too. And this is what it means for you as well. right? For all of you who hide yourself in the blood of Jesus. For all of you who hide yourself in the ultimate Passover lamb. His death means your freedom as well. Freedom from sin. Freedom from Satan. Freedom from death itself. They no longer have a grip on it you. You are no longer in their clutches. You are no longer slaves, but you are free. On the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for your sins. And when you hide in him, God passes over you. When you seek refuge in him, you are declared innocent and free. But that's not the end of your story. Just as the first Passover resulted in a bunch of slaves walking into freedom, so does this one. See, Christ did not die so that you can stay stuck in your bondage to sin. He did not tear down prison walls and break chains so that you can just hang out in the rubble of a prison yard. Christ did all of this so that you can step over the rubble and follow him into freedom. Being saved from sin's penalty is a past act. Right? at a past event, something that is of benefit to you the minute that you put your faith and trust in Christ. But being saved from sin's power is a process. It is a process that is initiated by grace. You would never do it had He not rescued you. And it is sustained by grace as well. God is with you, setting you free, and then He is with you, walking you into the promised land. But you and I are meant to walk. We are meant to walk right into the newness of life. Just as surely as Israel walked out of Egypt and stepped into the promised land. Right? Look, Jesus is the ultimate Passover Lamb. Okay? But here's my last point to you all tonight. You all must take refuge in his blood. It is not enough for you that an innocent one died. You've got to get behind it. You need to find your refuge in him. You've got to ingest it. You've got to eat it. Get this sacrifice deep inside of you. This Passover sacrifice has to be personally appropriated it's not enough for you just to know that this happened. right? You've got to believe it. You've got to receive it. You've got to make it yours. All I have to say is, the Passover sacrifice that Jesus made for you, it has to be personally appropriated. I want you to imagine that you're somebody homeless, but then somebody very generously walks up to you and writes you a billion dollar check, gives it to you. Technically, in that moment, you're a billionaire. But in actuality, you're a billionaire only if you cash the check. You've got to cash it in. Otherwise, you're still living in poverty. Otherwise, you're still homeless. And what a tragedy that would be. To have a billion dollars in your possession and to live impoverished. Somebody giving you this unbelievable gift, but living in poverty because you won't appropriate it. Well, God could not give you a greater gift than this one. He could not give you a greater gift than his son. He could not give you a greater gift than free entry into heaven, right? And life everlasting. This is the best thing. This is way better than a billion, right? But you've got to cash it in, right? Don't be that person who does nothing with a valuable gift. I want you to think of this one other way. Every car made in the world today has a seatbelt. Every car has a seatbelt. But you've got to put it on. The thing that can save your life is everywhere and available to everyone. But it's only good to you if you wear it. Jesus has come to save your life. His blood has got you covered, but you've got to wear it. You've got to put it on. It has got to click. Right? Those who walk out of a wreck are those who have put it on. However you want to slice it, you've got to cash this in. You've got to, this has got to click. Jesus makes it possible For you to leave your bondage and your poverty and the wreckage behind. My chains are gone. I have been set free. My God, my Savior has rescued me. And like a flood, his mercy reigns. Unending love. amazing grace. Let's pray.